The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Peter Clark. This is Ear to Asia. The Chinese government, they are not elected. So if the right thing to do, they would do it and do it as a tough way. So what I'm saying is the Chinese government, if they want to fix certain environmental problems, they can get down very quickly. We do also observe that China, because of the One Belt, One Road initiative, the state actually sometimes encouraged Chinese NGOs to reach out. So actually there is a systematic top-down initiative to you know, incentivize Chinese NGOs to actually do some work elsewhere, help other countries along the Belt and Road regions. In this episode, who's fighting for the environment in China? Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. China's meteoric economic rise has come at a huge cost to its natural environment. With the thick smog that envelops the country's north in the cooler months, serving as a reminder to inhabitants of the price they pay for the nation's success. The environmental challenges are numerous, including not just air pollution, but water scarcity, soil contamination and massive greenhouse gas emissions, to name but a few. The Chinese Communist Party, which has governed the nation since 1949, shows little tolerance for collective action. Yet environmental protests do happen, and NGOs battling for the environment do exist. So how do NGOs operate in this milieu? What value do China's citizens place on the environment? And how much of the Chinese government's relatively recent concern for the environment is owed to the actions of civil society? Joining me via Zoom to examine environmental politics in China and the role of civil society is Professor Mark Wang, China environmental policy expert and director of the Centre for Contemporary Chinese Studies at the University of Melbourne, and Associate Professor Feng Shou Wu from the University of New South Wales, who specialises in China's environmental politics. Feng Shou, welcome back to Ear to Asia, and Mark, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Feng Shui, of course, the great Chinese nation is multi-layered, and it's very hard to say what individuals think about the environment, but could we try and sketch in, just to open our discussion, what sense you and Mark have of how ordinary Chinese citizens, just the general population, feel about the environment and those environmental issues that we're going to discuss today? Just try and sketch it for us. I think they're increasingly feeling good about it and they have a natural instinct to protect it and to live with it but on the other hand by the time they go into their work or be part of a large huge project unconsciously i think the care for environment will sort of take a backseat mark i know that you've had a long experience back much earlier in the history of china Give us a sense how you see the key challenges around the environment facing the people's republic of china today we can say a major environmental problem, that including air pollution, water pollution, soil pollution, or CO2 emissions. I think we can talk about that one by one, but uh, I guess the major environmental government issue is the uh, central local government and not really action at one step. Let's go to one by one. 
The first one, air pollution, blue sky in China used to be uh, problematic. And the PM 2.5, the particle, the five particles in the air that are smaller than 2.5 micrometers in diameter. To many Chinese, this is a new concept. It's uh, dangerous about the lung problem. During the APEC period, Beijing's sky was blue. So the Chinese people realized we could have a blue sky. So that's really a starting point to try to fix the air pollution issues in China. Water pollution is quite a serious issue because up to 40% China's river seriously polluted. Everybody visits Chinese city. Amazing new building, blah, blah, blah. If you see the river, most of the rivers heavily, seriously polluted. And soil pollution have similar story about 15 or 19 percent of farmland was contaminated based on the China's National Soil Survey data. And CO2 emission, again, China is the largest CO2 emission, although the per capita level is still very low, only half of Australia per capita average. The major reason for water pollution is because the night dragging are managing the rivers in China. You call it Jiu Longzhi. So many departments, government departments, managing the river. But recently, again, the water pollution problem also improved because it introduced a new system called the River Chief System. All the local top officials are responsible for that river. So not the uh, Environmental Protection Bureau, it's the local top officials. So that system is quite important since the introduction in 2017. So the top local officials look after river water pollution problem, not just water pollution problem, but also other river problems. And a CO2 story we heard, carbon neutral target by 2030, carbon neutrality by 2060, Every corner of China is making plan for the local 2030 carbon neutral or 2060 plan. And Mark, just explain what APEC actually is. APEC, Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Meeting, was held in Beijing. During the period of APEC, Beijing sky was blue because all the pollution factory closed down and it's a blue sky. It's wonderful. Now, Mark, obviously, most of our discussion today will revolve around industrialization, the economy and the connection of pollution and care for the environment to that. But it's a very large population. I'm just thinking about some of those other areas, like, for example, disposal of waste and large landfills and plastics and all that sort of area. How does that figure in your analysis of the major challenges to the environment? Waste is a big issue. That's definitely true. But in China, it's quite different from here because of cheap labor. The recycling rate is quite high. Everything's recyclable, even the plastic bottle or newspaper. Also, somebody coming to collect, pay you. When her mom was in China, lived in China, she collect everything and put it in the high-rise corridor. And somebody coming, just say, collect, okay, two kilograms, give you 10 cents, 20 cents. And, you know, that kind of system is quite amazing. Related to the waste things, import the e-waste or other waste, including the plastic waste recycled in China. Plastic China, that video really rang a bell for me because one of my former students did some research about e-waste recycling in China, that similar story. Some of the area, local government established industry park for e-waste recycling. E-waste import from Japan, American, or could it be Australia as well, and recycle using absolutely many way to recycle the e-waste because it's valuable for the owners. 
recently, the central government have a tough regulation called a Yang Laji. This garbage is not allowed to import to China. Feng Shui, what do you have to add to that quick checklist, I suppose, of the key environmental challenges facing the People's Republic of China? I think China will face extreme weather and all the other ecological consequences of climate change in general, just as every other country. And I think climate-related natural disaster and weather-related disaster is really climbing up to the top of agenda. The awareness of these events and also the urgency of preparedness, the state needs to quickly build up the capacity in these areas. And I do think China is not different in that sense. There are quite a lot of China-specific environmental challenges. China has a long coast. Many of the coast areas uh, during the last wave of uh, real estate frenzy, there's a lot of newly built resorts. All these things are now being rethought and being reassessed. Uh, there are much more restrictions and policy guidelines for developers to reconsider their projects and China's agriculture. I've seen a lot of state-sponsored scientific reports on climate impact on the agricultural sector, also the entire Tibetan Plateau, the third pole of the world, significant changes in terms of glacier as well as the ecosystem on the plateau, around plateau, and also what that means for the other parts of China because of the warming up of the entire Tibetan Plateau. So these are some major, I think, ecological challenges China is facing as a result of global climate change. Mark, the documentary Under the Dome, which I've seen a little bit of, but not the whole documentary, maybe you can give us a more expanded idea of the content of this documentary, but this was a pivotal moment in awakening China's population to environmental issues more broadly. Just give us a sense of the documentary and its influence. Well, actually, that documentary be used for my China in Translation lecture. It was released 2015. I think it's a awakening call. I think this is a very trustful document, not a propaganda, not like a Chinese government, a CCTV, central Chinese TV, you know, central government propaganda. It's a self-funded and also using a very plain language with quite a lot of scientific evidence. So real people talk to the real story. Immediately after seven days released 300 million viewers. 300 million Chinese people view the documents generate enormous impact. That's very important signal. Secondly, it positions, I would say, China's air pollution problem in a kind of a comparative perspective, not just say this is a China problem, this is an only China problem. The Chinese audience, Chinese viewers saw Great Britain had a similar story. American have the same problem, or Japan had the same problem. Not just Chinese, but this is associated with the industrialization, blah, blah, blah. I guess that also make Chinese authorities say, oh, this is okay at the very beginning. But after the first seven days, I immediately have 300 million viewers. I think it was a closed down lockdown, I think. Also, it's documented clearly the root problem is China's state-owned enterprises, so-called a CNPC, you know, the most powerful state-owned enterprises in the world, China National 
Petroleum Corporation. The dialogue with that CNPC authority, personal responsible, was wonderful and very impressive. So that's very useful uh, awakening call. Make millions and millions of Chinese people realize particular air pollution issues. Used to be for many Chinese people feel like, oh, the air pollution, are you sure it's air pollution? It's just a normal weather, you know, fog. But more and more people realize that no matter who you are, rich, poor, you have to burst air. So everybody has to burst polluted air. So why not? If APAC can have a blue sky, why not? I'm not 100% sure this documentary directly changed the China air pollution law or released the new policy. That's something I'm not 100% sure. The clear air policy was implemented in 2013. But since the 2015, that document released in 2015, hundreds and hundreds steel factory in the Hebei province, which is a neighbor province of Beijing, quarter of the world is still manufactured in Hebei province. So hundreds of them have been closed down to make the air quality better. So Beijing's air quality is definitely better. So air pollution, visible pollution problem, I think it become a focus of media and also government and society, which really make Beijing and most cities air quality better. I was ashamed because 10 or 15 years ago, the 10 worst polluted city in the world, one was Lingfeng, which I did my bachelor degrees in my hometown. But now Lingfeng had been removed to, I think, a worst 50 now. And now the most polluted city, top 10, I guess, seven or eight, maybe in India, not in China. Air quality has improved in recent years. I think that document is fundamentally important. Feng Shui, the way Mark describes the documentary, they seem to be those two aspects, the blue sky, but also health, which is the really obvious one, particularly when you're right in the middle of that pollution. After a few days, you can feel it affecting your lungs, etc. I've had direct experience of that. So how was that documentary not seen as the sort of dissent that's not appreciated by the Chinese Communist Party, not seen as a blunt and offensive critique? How did that particular documentary achieve that, do you think? First of all, I think it's done by a very, very experienced host, and she's worked within the state media system for years. She was one of the best communicator, I would think, between the state system and the large Chinese audience. So she was the right person to do that thing at that moment. But nevertheless, I think the response, the reaction was so much more than anyone anticipated. And I think the state or certain departments of the state got nervous and they never wanted uh, anything that would be so popular among the citizens that is not 100% a state project. It's an independent project. It's funded, produced by herself. So the state quickly became quite nervous and also wasn't sure whether this huge amount of public attention, where would that attention eventually lead to and turn into something. So very quickly, the state decided to take it off the Chinese internet. That sort of, again, evidences the power of it and the genuine public demand of good information on pollution. 
So it's a good moment now, I think, having heard you say that, to explore some of the history of, of environmental activism in the People's Republic of China. Try to chart for us just when those more identifiable signs of activism actually emerged in the People's Republic of China. Were they around specific issues like perhaps air pollution or chemical factories, etc.? How did the first real and tangible signs of environmental activism emerge in China? Around the middle of the 1990s, a couple of years after the Tiananmen students' movement, a group of scholars as well as intellectuals got together in Beijing and formed truly the first organized environmental association called Friends of Nature. And I would always use that as really the first instance of, of a modern style environmental activism in China. Before that, of course, there were lots of nature lovers, activists doing extraordinary things, but mostly individual acts. And by that moment, the emergence of organized civic activities focusing on environmental issues. Of course, some of them are politically aware, highly politically aware people, and as well as social elites. They had political views and ambitions, probably, or and they, of course, saw environmental issue as one way to make bigger changes to the Chinese social political system. But nevertheless, they were all environmentalists. They were genuinely concerned about ecological degradation. Right after 1978, the entire 1980s, so the first wave of economic development in China and environmental degradation was truly rapidly happening across the country. So this first group of intellectuals, very quickly also, they became fully aware of the potential of seemingly very low-key education, public education-oriented civic organization, they quickly became aware of the potential and impact of such initiatives. And they were very mindful of incubating, mentoring young generations and different bird-watching groups or nature-loving groups, clubs across the country. They made a conscious effort to groom more environmentalists across the country. For the next 10 years or so, all the way up until Olympic Games, it was very much led by key environmentalists, um, key NGOs, but uh, there was a steady growth of such initiatives. The major thing is to push individual environmentalists to get together and to do something together, even as minor as cleaning the beach, encouraging people to recycle batteries, planting trees in, in the Mongolia, mostly very low-key public education-oriented activities, but encouraging you know, environmentalists to get together to do something beyond individual level. And the Olympic Games certainly opened China even more. And the government also, of course, had to change narratives, which opened a rare window of opportunity, structural opportunity for NGOs really to take off. And also a couple of events down the road, Sichuan earthquake, you know, unexpectedly, it was a natural disaster, but nevertheless, environmental NGOs all joined other civic initiatives, joined millions of volunteers, but really because the environmental field or the environmental NGO sector were probably the best self-organized sector in the large landscape of civil society in China. So they were really able to quickly 
turns this crisis into a massive opportunity for organizational development and for NGOs to, especially urban-based NGOs, to sink into rural communities. That was a critical moment for me as a social scientist to see that happen because otherwise environmental movements and activism in China were mostly still very much urban-based, large city-based, but Sichuan earthquake unexpectedly offered a rare opportunity for urban-based NGOs to be deeply connected with lots of rural communities. That is crucial for a full-fledged movement to emerge rather than a still very much narrowly defined movement only supported by middle class. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. And just a reminder to listeners about Asia Institute's online publication on Asia and its societies, politics and cultures. It's called the Melbourne Asia Review. It's free to read and it's open access at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. You'll find articles by some of our regular Ear to Asia guests and by many others. Plus, you can catch recent episodes of Ear to Asia at the Melbourne Asia Review website which again you can find at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. I'm Peter Clark with guest Associate Professor Feng Shu Wu and Professor Mark Wang, and we're discussing environmental activism and politics in China. Feng Shu, let's look more closely at NGOs now, and we're very aware that during the Xi Jinping era, politics are much more controlled now. Dissent is not appreciated, much more control over collective action. So the obvious question, how are NGOs allowed to exist at all? Who funds them? Why are they allowed to exist within that environment? The state is not inexperienced because also the landscape of NGOs in China you know, is multi-layered as well. They are grassroots NGOs and unregistered or semi-registered and commercial organizations and non-profit organizations. So, but on the other end of the spectrum, there are lots lots of quasi-NGOs, or, or there's a term called gongo, government-organized NGOs, very ironic in its term, but it does exist and exist in large quantity in China. These are social service providers and are authorized entities. They're closely related to state agencies, but they are officially off state paychecks or personnel control system. So the state has a huge amount of experience in controlling these quasi-NGOs. They have no problem. They actually see them as foot soldiers. You know, there's a deep fundamental level sort of changes in China's public policy sphere. So there's lots of new uh, ways of implementing, initiating, changing public policies in China at different levels. And such quasi NGOs or semi-non-state or state entities play a role in the public policy sphere. Now, after that, there's just a small segment of social organizations that are truly, really innovative, independent, critical. And yes, I think after Xi Jinping came into power, um, state control over that space became more centralized, became securitized, became systematized. As well, which means the state has enacted more laws, the state has restructured governing institutions, have re-streamlined 
uh, mandates of different governing institutions, and they're giving public security agencies a bigger role than ever to regulate NGOs in general. And maybe the state still tolerates certain amount of NGOs as long as they are not upfront, you know, outrageously against the regime. In the environmental field, I would say majority of NGOs are surviving, maybe not thriving, but surviving and doing their regular work. Um, but there is one particular space is collective action. Definitely that space has been crushed and crushed and crushed. And I think the state sees that as particular threat. They don't see these NGOs, particularly a lot of NGOs interested in independent research or policy advising as a particular threat, but they really do not appreciate uh, protests or peaceful demonstrations or any sorts of collective action by residents or potential pollution victims. The state try different means, sticking the carrots, you know, I just explained, um, they've tightened up control, but they also try to improve different channels for citizens to voice individually. They prefer you individually voice your complaints, but also individually get some compensations. For ensure even more fundamentally important, the larger NGOs within the People's Republic of China forming linkages outside the nation with NGOs, environmental NGOs in other countries. I guess the CCP would see that more as a security issue rather than an environmental issue. Is that correct? Yes and no, but this is a very good question. It really opens a new conversation we haven't touched today yet, but I think it's really a critical aspect of both China's urgent environmental politics, particularly the increasing element of China's role in global environmental politics. And the other is the future of environmental society. I think the space for Chinese NGOs to link up across domestic localities as well across borders are definitely being watched. It's not a free space. Yes, it's being watched. It's being traced. It's being guided. Right. managed, controlled. Domestically, I think, with uh, social media, new media, and different new technologies, it's easier for NGO actors to communicate with each other. They're still doing lots of work together. But more interestingly, do Chinese NGOs go abroad? Yes, they do. But before Xi Jinping's time, they do it by accidents or by personal connections, by you know naturally grown sort of mutual interests, particular events such as the Chinese anti-dam movement. The leaders of that got connected with many, many leading NGOs in Southeast Asia because they all concerned of the New River, the upstream of the Mekong River, which downstream is the lifeline for millions of people in Southeast Asia. By the nature of the problem, activists got connected. Today, yes, I think we do also observe that the state because of the One Belt, One Road initiative, believe it or not, the state actually sometimes encouraged Chinese NGOs to reach out. So actually, there is a systematic top-down initiative, you know, incentivize Chinese NGOs to actually do some work elsewhere, okay, help other countries along the Belt and Road regions. But of course, closely ally whatever NGO activities are with the central government's particular projects in those regions. 
Mark, earlier we mentioned the Dome documentary, and there's also another documentary that's been very influential, Plastic China. And we saw that initially they were to some extent tolerated, then squished, squashed, shut down on social media, particularly once the temperature rose. But at the same time, Beijing did move on some environmental issues in response to those documentaries and popular response to the documentaries. What pattern do we see in the choices Beijing makes in responding to environmental issues, whether raised by documentaries or otherwise? I guess the uh, central government does want to fix the environmental problem. That's absolutely the major driving force, which is very important to understand China's environmental governance issues. I guess the major concern for central government is whether such events or environmental movement related to social stability generate a big public attention if it's a huge beyond the environment issues related to stability, central government definitely will say no, you know, take action. Otherwise, the central government actually really want to fix the environmental problem. That's my understanding. That phrase that Xi Jinping used, ecological civilization, it sounds grand, doesn't it? What does he actually mean? And what does that phrase actually entail in real politics? Ecological civilization now is a very popular slogan in China, similar to another term, China dream. Zhongguomeng everywhere is talking about China dream and media public talk about that. It means that they consider nature to be part of life rather than something that can be explored without restraint. The concept, this ecological civilization try to achieve the three dimension, including sustainable development, the environment, economic, and social dimension. So it's three dimension. I would say Xi Jinping, I guess, try to correct the mistake the Deng Xiaoping and a post-Deng Xiaoping two or three decades did the economic-focused black-white cat theory. Doesn't matter if cat is black-white as long as you cat mice or GDP driven to attract foreign investment. All this is economic development driven idea. I guess that generates so much issue, including environmental disaster we are talking about today, including the inequality, rich, poor, gap, polarized China. So the ecological civilization, I guess, is something bring Chinese authorities to think about. Do we have to only GDP driving? Or can we think about GEP, which is another term, gross ecological product, which is a new term and being used by the local official that make Chinese office realize GDP driving is over, not just GDP driving should be considered an ecological cost. Feng Shui, what is the generational dimension to all this? We know that currently the top echelons of Chinese leaders tend to be former Red Guards at the time of the Cultural Revolution. So I guess we can well expect that hardline approach to governance. That's their hallmark. But what about the often only children of the burgeoning middle class? Can we detect in them a distinctly different approach to the environment? Is it generational? All generations have their collective features or characters, and uh, so are the uh, single child generation in China. They're post-Mao. It's not particularly about family structure in today's discussion, but it's more the post-Maoist 
kind of collectivization of the country. And they are the generation experienced rapid economic taking off. They're the generation, in a sense, experienced a generally a more positive, I mean, despite of the Tiananmen, many of my peers, um, we do have memories of that. Some of us choose to remember that more. The others have decided to put that behind and move forward. But then there's also the slightly down the road, for example, my younger cousin's generation. They have no memory of the 1980s. I used to joke, we at least remember being hungry, have chocolate once a year, you know, those memories. They've only experienced materialistic sort of abundance or well-being and really carefree in a sense. But then they got connected with, you know, global values. Um, They are exposed to a lot of new values at a very, very young age. They're by nature recyclists. Like they recycle way more than their parents' generation. They understood the language of energy efficiency and green lifestyle, you know, vegetarianism and also animal welfare. All these, in a way, kicked in fairly early on. So China has old problems, but also China has a significant sort of a young generation that are behaving and endorsing values worldwide. They think similarly as a lot of young people outside China. Again, as I said, a green lifestyle sort of really kicked in. But nevertheless, I think things are changing as well as I think the state control over media, over social media really now tightened up during COVID pandemic and all of that. And China increasingly being targeted by lots of non-Chinese media and people's frustration with other countries finger pointing that China is the cause of the global disaster. Public psychology being manipulated and and people start, you know, really just referring to official sources about issues and problems in general. So I see a turning point in a way. I see things are changing. I see even the younger generation are gradually becoming very cynical and critical about so-called global values. This is a result of complicated sort of sequences of events ever since the pandemic. Really, we're in a very strange and critical moment of history, I think. A word we haven't used in our discussion so far in this podcast is transparency. And I know transparency probably means a very different thing in that environment compared to what it might mean here in Australia. All governments deal with transparency in various ways, I suppose. In practical terms, for example, how reliable is the data that environmental agencies attach to the Chinese government? How accurate is that data, do you believe? It depends on exactly what data, and there are certain data, accuracy is not an issue because such data can be validated through globally sort of satellite-based data. But there is issue of transparency, yeah. I am pretty sure the Chinese authorities have good data themselves, but whether they're willing to share, when to share, what to share, uh, how to share, is constantly negotiated and being decided on the spot. In some areas, such as air pollution, civil society actors or NGOs managed to have a totally different system, amazingly. And now the system being expanded to water as well as land pollution is, is championed by an NGO called Institute for the Environment and Public based in Beijing. And they really utilize app, uh, cell-based app, 
they've championed this practice called citizen science, good or bad. You know, you can debate about it, but this has been working in the Chinese context, and they encourage uh, local community-based citizens and geos to upload the data that they firsthand collected, and so everybody sort of putting in to this. So we know this technology and. Most of the time, the instantaneous availability of these bottom-up data presents not just a map, a processed um, demonstration of data, but really is a strong point without saying it, right? The different fragmented pieces coming together, and together they present a different pattern from what's reported through the official media system. That's one way to deal with this transparency issue or lack of transparency and no public access to environment data. Now, a final question to both of you. We've just seen the Chinese Communist Party celebrate its centenary with great pomp and ceremony, and we also heard a major address from Xi Jinping. You have to say it was bellicose in many ways, stern, don't mess with us sort of tone to that address. So I want to ask both of you, which way, in your opinion, is the arc bending in terms of the government becoming more accommodating to the views and voices of China's populace regarding the environment in the foreseeable future? Which way is that arc bending market, do you think? First, Chinese government is doing something perhaps similar to our Western government. Public concerns are becoming the government concern, the environmental issues. Government want to do something, that's definitely true. The environmental issues, uh, it's one of our least politicalized items in China compared with the other issues. So the Chinese government, I would say, a little bit tolerant about the social media, public opinion. However, the Chinese government, they are not elected. So they believe this is a long-term benefit. Do it. We don't have to be everybody agree. So if the right thing to do, that we do it and do it as a tough way. Another point is the I feel like regarding environmental management, environmental governance, I think Chinese government have some sort of a capacity recently, demonstrated capacity to fix some of the problem. One example is the river chief system. I mentioned that in the previous discussion. That was a new system, used to be top-down. Now it's a local top office to look after the river pollution problem. I just take an example like a Suzhou Creek used to be polluted, heavily polluted. People traveled to Suzhou maybe 10 years ago, smell the Suzhou Creek, you know, mile away, you can smell. But after three or four years, Suzhou Creek, no smell and clean. So what I'm saying is the Chinese government, if they want to fix certain environmental problems, they can get down very quickly. The government is so important to understand environmental governance, environmental management issues in China. Feng sure you got the final word. It's quite a moment, for sure, and nothing is particularly surprising. Xi Jinping has demonstrated that he is a strong leader. He's different from his immediate predecessors, and he has done a lot to put himself in the same stage as Dan and Mao. The world should expect China will be assertive, and today's China is not 30, 40 years ago, and China's aware of its own economic capacity and power and the global weight as well. So I think he's increasingly sees himself a global leader, a global level leader. And I also think that 
in some areas, the Chinese state is ahead of the public. The more politicized environmental issues are at the global level. When climate change was marginal, the state is not particularly keen, but everybody knows climate change is really on top of global political agenda. Energy shift, renewable energy is really everyone's agenda. Every major government will make that shift at some point. And carbon neutral is new policy reality and utilize different resources. The state is super interested in excelling in all these hyper-technologies, hyper-technology infrastructure, hyper-technology in ocean resources and all of these. In these areas, the state is way ahead of Chinese public if not public everywhere. So we need to really actually encourage more monitoring of state policies from all angles and reflect on this super enthusiasm to utilize natural resources overseas. Yes, I do think uh, there's a need to really follow closely what the Chinese state is aiming at and monitor the consequences, immediate consequences and impact of such policies. Feng Shui, Mark, thank you so much for being with us on Ear to Asia. Pleasure. Thank you. Our guests today have been experts in China's environmental affairs, Professor Mark Wang from the University of Melbourne and Associate Professor Feng Shui Wu from the University of New South Wales. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And please help us by spreading the word on social media. This episode was recorded under COVID safe conditions on the 6th of July 2021. Producers were Kelvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark. Thanks for your company.